Welcome to the Banner of Truth broadcast. This program is brought to you by the Free Reformed Churches of North America. Your host is Pastor Jack Schumann, pastor of the Emmanuel Free Reformed Church of Abbotsford, British Columbia. And now, here is Pastor Jack Schumann. We are continuing our series of sermons on the book of Ezra, and I invite you to turn with me to Ezra chapter 9 as we read the verses 5 through 15. Let us hear the holy word of God. At the evening sacrifice, I, that is Ezra, arose from my fasting, and having torn my garment and my robe, I fell on my knees and spread out my hands to the Lord my God. And I said, O my God, I am too ashamed and humiliated to lift up my face to you, my God. For our iniquities have risen higher than our heads, and our guilt has grown up to the heavens. Since the days of our fathers to this day we have been very guilty, and for our iniquities we, our kings and our priests, have been delivered into the hand of the kings of the lands, to the sword, to captivity, to plunder, and to humiliation as it is this day. And now for a little while grace has been shown from the Lord our God to leave us a remnant to escape and to give us a peg in his holy place that our God may enlighten our eyes and give us a measure of revival in our bondage. For we were slaves, yet our God did not forsake us in our bondage, but he extended mercy to us in the sight of the kings of Persia to revive us, to repair the house of our God, to rebuild its ruins, and to give us a wall in Judah and Jerusalem. And now, O our God, what shall we say after this? For we have forsaken your commandments, which you commanded by your servants the prophets, saying, The land which you are entering to possess is an unclean land, with the uncleanness of the peoples of the lands, with their abominations which have filled it from one end to another, with their impurity. Now therefore do not give your daughters as wives for their sons, nor take their daughters to your sons, and never seek their peace or prosperity, that you may be strong and eat the good of the land, and leave it as an inheritance to your children forever. And after all that has come upon us, for our evil deeds and for our great guilt, since you, our God, have punished us less than our iniquities deserve, and have given us such deliverance as this, should we again break your commandments and join in marriage with the people, committing these abominations? Would you not be angry with us until you had consumed us, so that there would be no remnant or survivor? O Lord God of Israel, you are righteous, for we are left as a remnant as it is this day. Here we are before you, in our guilt, though no one can stand before you because of this. This brings us to the end of the reading of the Word of God. May he bless the reading and preaching of it to our hearts. Dear friends, there are many well-known prayers in the Bible. We can think, for example, of the prayer of Daniel in Daniel chapter 9, or the prayer of Solomon at the dedication of the temple in 1 Kings 8, and of course the high priestly prayer of our Lord Jesus Christ in John 17. Each of these prayers are models for us to follow. They serve to teach us how to pray and what to pray for. And that is also true for the prayer of our text, the prayer of Ezra, which we just read together. Now, as we learned the last time, Ezra had just heard some shocking news. 
The leaders of the people had informed him that the people of Jerusalem had committed a serious sin. They had married heathen women contrary to the law of God. And the leaders of the people, including the Levites, who should have known better, led the way in this sin. Well, when Ezra heard about this, he was shocked and deeply grieved. And we read in verse 3, So when I heard this thing, I tore my garment and my robe and plucked out some of the hair of my head and beard and sat down astonished. Nor was Ezra alone in this. For as word got out, Ezra writes in verse 4, that everyone who trembled at the words of the God of Israel assembled to me because of the transgression of those who had been carried away captive, and I sat astonished until the evening sacrifice. Ezra and these people were so shocked and so grieved by what they heard that all they could do was sit for hours on end, utterly speechless. But then as the evening sacrifice approached, Ezra got up to pray. And it's to this prayer that we turn our attention with God's help today. My theme is Ezra prays for his people. And we'll consider, first of all, the confession he makes, and secondly, the mercy he desires. It was, as I said, the time of the evening sacrifice, Ezra, together with those who trembled at the word of the Lord, had been sitting, presumably, in one of the courts of the temple for several hours, utterly astonished, without saying a word. But then, either before, during, or even after the sacrifice was laid on the altar, Ezra stood up to pray. And we read in verse 5, At the evening sacrifice, I arose from my fasting, and having torn my garment and my robe, I fell on my knees and spread out my hands to the Lord my God. Now notice what Ezra does here. First of all, he says he rose up from his fasting. Evidently, Ezra had not had anything to eat or drink all day long, probably as a sign of his overwhelming grief. But now he ceased fasting. Secondly, he says, he fell upon his knees. To pray on bended knee, while not required by Scripture, is certainly very fitting, especially in an occasion like this, because it communicates humility and dependence. And it also communicates that the one before whom we draw nigh is worthy of all reverence and worship. And Ezra knew this, and so he fell on his knees. Thirdly, he says, he spread out his hands. Now that, too, is a posture of humility, dependence, and imploration. When a beggar begs for food, he holds out his empty hands, and that's what Ezra does here. He spreads out his hands to God. And you'll notice that he did this at the time of the evening sacrifices. Now, there were two daily sacrifices in the temple. There was the morning sacrifice, which took place around 9 o'clock in the morning, and then there was the evening sacrifice, which took place about six hours later, around 3 o'clock in the afternoon. At each of these two sacrifices, a lamb was offered as an atoning sacrifice for sin, while the people gathered together for prayer. Well, as such, it was an ideal time for Ezra to pray. Now, most of his prayer consisted of confession of sin. And I want you to notice several things about this confession. First of all, it was corporate. You'll notice that Ezra starts out using the first person singular. Verse 6, O oh my God, I am too ashamed and humiliated to lift up my face to you, my God. 
But then you'll notice he switches to the first person plural. Verse 6, our iniquities, he says, our guilt. And verse 7, we have been very guilty, our iniquities, and so on, all the way to the end of the prayer. Now this is significant. Because Ezra himself was not guilty of the sin of marrying heathen women. And yet he identified himself with the people of Jerusalem who had. He considered himself guilty before God along with the whole community. Now why is that? Well, for the simple reason that he was a member of the covenant community of God. Now, although there's a sense in which we are all responsible for our own sins, it's also true that within the covenant community, when one member of the community sins, the whole community is responsible and sometimes even suffers the punishment for that one sin. And that's especially true, as it was in this case, when the ones who have sinned are the leaders of the people. And Ezra knew this, and so he prayed in the first person, plural, Secondly, you'll notice his confession was humble. Verse 6, Oh my God, he says, I am too ashamed and humiliated to lift up my face to you, my God. Because of their sin, Ezra felt he had no right to approach God about anything. He was worthy only of God's wrath and condemnation. It reminds us, doesn't it, of the publican in the temple. Jesus said that this publican stood in a far corner of the temple and he would not so much as lift up his eyes towards heaven, but he beat upon his breast and he said, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. Well, beloved, this is also how we must approach God in prayer as well. Not in pride like the Pharisee who thought he was worthy of God's attention and blessing, but in great humility, conscious that we are nothing and we deserve nothing from the Lord. Thirdly, notice his confession of guilt was comprehensive. Ezra did not just make a brief mention of the sins of the people. No, he fleshed it out, we could say. He confessed, for example, the sheer magnitude of their sin. Verse 6, our iniquities have risen higher than our heads and our guilt has grown up to the heavens. Now, that's not hyperbole. Ezra's not exaggerating merely to make a point. He's serious. From his perspective and from God's perspective, certainly the sins of the people had risen higher than their heads and had grown up to the heavens. He also confessed the lengthy duration of their sin. Verse 7, since the days of our fathers to this day, we have been very guilty. So Ezra here confesses that the sin of which the people were guilty was not a recent development. They were guilty of this sin from the very beginning of their history. It was like a hereditary disease that's passed on from one generation to the next. He also confessed the just judgment of God on their sin. Verse 7 again. He says, And for our iniquities, we, our kings and our priests, have been delivered into the hand of the kings of the lands, to the sword, to captivity, to plunder, and to humiliation, as it is this day. Now, Ezra here acknowledges that it's because of their sin that the Jews were justly oppressed and attacked by their enemies. And that was true not only in the past, but also, as Ezra says here, to this day. He was referring, of course, to the fact that the Jews were not an independent, autonomous nation. 
There was no king from the line of David on the throne during Ezra's, Ezra's day. In fact, in verse 9, he openly says that they were slaves, not literally, but figuratively, in the sense that they were still under Persian domination and would be for the foreseeable future. Fourthly, Ezra mentions several shocking aggravations of their sin, or factors that made their sins even worse. He says, for example, they sinned only a short time after arriving in the land. Verse 8, And now for a little while grace has been shown from the Lord our God to leave us a remnant to escape. The people had recently settled in the promised land. God had been so good to them. He protected them on their journey. He gave them favor with the king and the nations around them. And yet they sinned. And that only after a short time of being back in the land of promise. They also sinned not in ignorance, but against a clear command of Scripture. For the Scriptures clearly commanded the people not to marry heathen women. And Ezra acknowledges as much in verses 10 to 12. But the people didn't listen. And that made their sin even worse. They also sinned despite the fact that God had been merciful to them. Look at verse 8. Ezra acknowledges that God had left them a remnant to escape. Now the reference here is to the remnant that left Babylon to settle in the land of Judah and thus ensuring the survival of the nation and the coming of the Messiah. They didn't deserve that. They deserved to be completely and utterly annihilated, but God was merciful to them and he preserved for himself a remnant. And yet, in spite of that, they sinned. In verse 8, he further acknowledges that God had given them a peg in his holy place that God might enlighten their eyes and give them a measure of revival in their bondage. The word peg is very interesting. It refers to a stake that was used to hold a tent in position. It could also refer to a peg or a nail in a wall that was used for hanging personal belongings. And the idea is that God gave them a place in his temple, like a peg of a tent. And the idea is he gave them a secure place. Just as you cannot easily remove a peg from a wall, so the people of Judah could not easily be severed from their covenant God. And yet in spite of that, they sinned. Also notice in verse 9, he says, We were slaves. Yet our God did not forsake us in our bondage, but he extended mercy to us in the sight of the kings of Persia to revive us, to repair the house of our God, to rebuild its ruins, and to give us a wall in Judah and Jerusalem. God had done so much for them, and yet they sinned. Notice too, verse 13, God had punished them less than their iniquities deserved, and yet they sinned. The point is, although God had been so good to them, although he had extended great mercy towards them, they had sinned against him. And Ezra knew this. And for that reason, he makes confession of sin. Oh, my friends, what about you and me this morning? Do we not also have much to confess before the Lord? You know, we're no different than the people of Judah. We too have transgressed against God. Oh, maybe we haven't committed the same kind of sin. Perhaps none of us are guilty of marrying a heathen woman. 
But have we not sinned in a similar way? The last time we learned that at root, the sin of marrying heathen women was the sin of worldliness. It was the sin of wanting to blend in with the world, wanting to come as close to the world as we possibly can. And is that not a sin of which we are all guilty to one degree or another? Worldliness is a major problem in the church today. It manifests itself in so many ways, in the clothes that people wear, in the music that they listen to, in the language that they use, in the books and magazines that they read, in the internet sites that they visit, and what they post on social media. It's evident in people's priorities, what's important to them, what gives them happiness and joy. It's evident in how people think about the issues of the day, like feminism and homosexuality and transgenderism. And I'm constantly amazed how much the thinking of professing Christians on these and other subjects is influenced not by the Scriptures, but by the world. It's like the world has given them its talking points and they just parrot them without thinking. Yes, I submit to you that worldliness is rampant in the church today and as such it needs to be confessed and forsaken. And in addition to this, are there not many other sins to confess before God? Is there not the sin of pride and of lust, of anger, of bitterness and resentment and fear and jealousy? Oh, there are so many sins to confess. My friend, are you doing that? Are you regularly, honestly, openly confessing your sins to God? Not glibly and matter-of-factly, but thoroughly and with feeling like Ezra does here in our text chapter. You know, during times of revival, people were so convicted of their sins that they would weep, literal tears, as even in church, under the preaching of the Word of God. And Ezra knew of this too. He was so troubled by the sins of the people that he plucked out his hair and sat down astonished for several hours. Now, I'm not saying that we always have to weep over our sins, much less pluck out our hair. What people experienced during times of revival and what Ezra himself experienced are extraordinary workings of the Holy Spirit. But there does need to be at least some measure of brokenness that I have offended a good doing and a loving God and therefore am not worthy of any of his blessings, only his wrath and his condemnation. My friend, do you know of times like that in your life? Oh, how we need to take instruction from Ezra. Let us learn to make true confession of our sin before the Lord, for then and only then can we be forgiven. And so Ezra confesses the sins of the people before God, but he also, in the second place, desires mercy. That brings us to our second point. The people of Judah had sinned greatly against the Lord, and that concerned Ezra greatly. And he expresses that concern in verses 13 and 14. He writes, And after all that has come upon us for our evil deeds and for our great guilt, since you, our God, have punished us less than our iniquities deserve and have given us such deliverance as this, should we again break your commandments 
and join in marriage with the people committing these abominations? Would you not be angry with us until you had consumed us so that there would be no remnant or survivor? Oh, do you see what Ezra's saying here? He knows that God had been merciful to his people, but now they had sinned again. And that raised the question in his mind, would God cease to be merciful? Was this the final straw? Would God now turn his back on his people for good? Would he utterly consume them in his wrath? Ezra didn't know, nor did he feel he could ask. For you notice how this prayer ends in verse 15. O Lord God of Israel, you are righteous. For we are left as a remnant as it is this day. Here we are before you in our guilt. Though no one can stand before you because of this. And normally we would expect a prayer of confession to end with a plea for mercy. That stands to reason after all. Because when we sin, we need mercy. But Ezra doesn't do that, does he? Instead, he simply affirms that God is righteous and they are sinners and as such, no one is able to stand before him and live. Why is that? Well, because Ezra knew that the people did not deserve anything from the Lord. They had sinned and therefore they deserved to perish in their sin. And yet, in spite of all of this, Ezra hopes for mercy. He doesn't say so in so many words, but it's certainly implied. It's implied in verse 8. Ezra says, And now for a little while grace has been shown from the Lord our God to leave us a remnant to escape and to give us a peg in his holy place that our God may enlighten our eyes and give us a measure of revival in our bondage. And it's applied again in in verse 9, where Ezra declares that although we were slaves, yet God did not forsake us in our bondage, but he extended mercy to us in the sight of the kings of Persia to revive us, to repair the house of our God, to rebuild its ruins, and to give us a wall in Judah and Jerusalem. And it's implied again in verse 13, You, our God, have punished us less than our iniquities deserve and have given us such deliverance as this. In each of these three verses, Ezra acknowledges that God had been merciful to his people. And that gave him hope. God was merciful to his people in the past. Therefore, maybe, just maybe, he would be merciful to them again. You see, that's what faith does. Faith casts itself on hope. Faith hopes against hope. It tries to find some reason, not in self, for there's nothing in self, but in God, whereby sin can be forgiven and reconciliation can be affected. Think, for example, the prodigal son. When the prodigal son came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have bread enough and to spare, and I perish with hunger. I will arise and go to my father and will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you and am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. Well, do you see what the son was doing here? He was hoping in his father's mercy. He knew that his father was a good, just, and kind man. And as such, he would receive him back. Well, maybe not as his son, for he didn't deserve that, and he knew that. But certainly, 
as a hired servant. And he was right. For we read later on in the parable that when he was still a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. And when the son told his father that he had sinned against heaven and in his sight and was therefore no longer worthy to be called his son, even before he could get to the part about making him as one of his hired servants, the father, as it were, with his fingers on the lips of his son, said to his servants, Bring out the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet and bring the fatted calf here and kill it. And let us eat and be merry, for this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And we read, and they began to be merry. Now we see the same thing here, don't we? Ezra did not dare ask God to forgive the people, but deep down inside he knew he would, because he knew the character of his God. He knew that God was merciful and gracious and long-suffering and that he is always faithful to his covenant. And he pinned his hopes on that. And he was right. For God was merciful to his people. He did not utterly destroy them as they deserved. And we know that because in the next chapter, We read that having been confronted with their sin, the people repented of their sin and even put away their foreign wives. Now that didn't come from themselves. This is the fruit of the work of the Holy Spirit. Although they had forsaken God, God had not forsaken them. Instead, he worked in their hearts by his Spirit, causing them to see their great sin and to repent of it before the Lord. And God forgave them, as he always does. And he blessed them. And in the fullness of time, he sent his only begotten Son into the world, who suffered and died and rose again, so that whoever believes on him may not perish, but have everlasting life. Oh, God was merciful. And he promises to be merciful to you too, sinner, if you, like Ezra, come to him in true brokenness, confessing your sins and your unworthiness before him. Will you do that today? Oh, rest assured, God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. Rather, he wants them to come to him, repenting of sin, believing on his Son, as the only hope and ground of their salvation, and he promises that those who do so shall be saved, that they shall receive the pardon of all of their sins and everlasting life, and he promises to give his Son as a mediator and an intercessor. And that means that just as Ezra interceded for the people of Judah, so the Lord Jesus Christ will intercede for those who trust in him today. And he doesn't do so just for a few minutes, as Ezra did, but all day, every day, and he will continue to do so until the end of time. Oh, since that is so, will you not look to this Savior? Will you not trust in him? Will you not love him and live for him? Oh, if you've never believed on him, do so today. In him, there is an inexhaustible supply of mercy. In him, there is salvation and life. In him... We have everything that we need. Amen. 
We always appreciate hearing from our listeners. If you were blessed by or have a comment on the message you've heard today, we'd very much appreciate hearing from you. Our mailing address is Banner of Truth, 3386 Mount Lehman Road. Lehman is spelled L-E-H-M-A-N, Abbotsford, British Columbia, V4X 2M9. If you would like to listen to the message you've just heard again, or if you would like more information about our program, including how to contact us and how to listen to other messages on this program, please visit our website at banneroftruthradio.com. Support for this program is provided by the Free Reformed Churches of North America. For more information about our churches, including where you can find a church nearest you, please visit our denominational website at www.frcna.org. Thank you for listening, and now, until next week, may the Lord be with you all.